Within this room, and those who will hear this message later, we have a, a long line of different experiences and views on baptism. Some of us in this room uh, have not been baptized. We were never taught about it, learned about it, never had opportunity or took opportunity. Some are baptized as infants. You may not remember it, but your parents told you, or you have a picture to commemorate the event. You might have been baptized at some later point in life. Perhaps you were baptized to join a church. And that was part of their requirements to be a member, to go through a baptism class, to be baptized in that church, to become a member. And there's all sorts of uh, in-between uh, views and practices of baptism. Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 3 to try to answer the question, why baptism? And uh, if you were with us last weekend, it was very important to understand John's baptism was unique. It was a baptism from John to the Jew only, calling them to repent. So it was uh, directed to the Jewish people to come out to repent for the forgiveness of sins because their Messiah was soon to come. John's baptism was unique, and as soon as John fades off the scene, probably no more than one year of literally out in the wilderness preaching and teaching by the Jordan. And so we will look at that text in connection with today's text with Jesus' baptism where he comes uh, to be baptized by John. So if you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 3, verse 21, we'll just read the first two verses is all we're really going to look at today are these two verses, 21 and 22, the baptism of Jesus. Now when the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now all four gospels include uh, Jesus' baptism. John, of course, uniquely in chapter 1, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke include it. Uh, Luke excludes the exchange where uh, John doesn't want to baptize Jesus, but Jesus says permit it at this time. But Luke's account nevertheless records that Christ is baptized. We know it's outside of Bethany near the Jordan. And for those who have been and will go to Israel one day, there's only a stretch of a couple of miles, maybe four or five miles up and down the Jordan, uh, which could be called near Bethany. Uh, so we know in a pretty good proximity, the geography at least, of where this baptism would have taken place. Um, Luke is the only one who notes a number of signals, I will call them, about Jesus' baptism. I want to point out several of these. And the first thing that Jesus' baptism signals is that he's praying. Look again at your Bible. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying. None of the other records indicate this. And this is part of Luke's signature in both Luke and Acts. He records prayer more than any other uh, a writer. And he has a fascinating thing he does. In fact, uh, in your community groups, if you follow some of the questions we provide, uh, we'll have you chase around some of these things. But what's interesting to think about when Jesus is recorded as praying, here at his baptism, he uh, prays often, he slips away, as was his habit, from the crush of the crowds to get away from the noise of life, to be alone and pray. He prays all night before he selects the 12 apostles. He prays um, at the transfiguration. He prays at the Mount of Olives when uh, uh, he's tent, when uh, the torment, Gethsemane, we think of that prayer, and when his uh, friends fall asleep and he, he keeps telling them to pray, time is short. And 
most intriguing to me, he prays on the cross while he's being crucified. And you see these unique pictures that only Luke gives us of some of Jesus' prayers not recorded in other gospel accounts. And as I was studying this week, uh, reviewing this passage, I got lost in a lot of those that I just ran through very quickly. And it, it strikes me, probably the biggest so what for the majority of us in this room is our prayer life. There's no spiritual discipline that is more difficult to measure but yet no spiritual discipline we all would give ourselves a pretty cruddy grade at is our prayer life. This past week, uh, I, was, I was crushed. Um, Bill was, has been ill this week, and so I, I volunteered to step in and teach for him, which I was glad to do. Um, we had some all-day meetings blocked out, and you've had weeks like that. Things just are a perfect storm, and you just got to do what you got to do. And uh, I got up Friday morning early, and I went down, and I had all this to do in my head that I hadn't done in the week, and where I go with my coffee and my Bible to, to read and study. Before I did anything, I just pulled out one of the prayer journals. I use a number of tools, perhaps you do too. And I just sat there for a long time and just prayed. And I said, I've really got to get recentered here, Lord. I am running so hard and so fast in a hundred directions, accomplishing nothing. Why is it so hard to pray? We think we can get more done doing things than we can pray. It's, it's like our money. You live better on 80% of your money than 100% once you get used to it. You'll be better and more efficient in your day when you have blocks of prayer than you will working all day like a maniac. We might believe, might believe that intellectually. But here's the rub. If the Son of God and the Son of Man thought it was important to sneak away at these times and be alone and pray, who in the world are we to think we don't need to pray? You may not need to hear anything else today. <laughs> that may be the only reason you came today. Not out of guilt, but out of a motivation to say you need time alone with the Psalms, with a prayer tool of some kind, with a pad where you are simply praying. You're focusing your affections, your attentions on God, on Christ, on what he's done for you, on forgiveness for your sins, on confession, on adoring, on thanking him. Had a number of conversations this week about Lent. People telling me what they were going to do for Lent. I have to bite my tongue. As a Catholic boy, <clears throat> what I, I, I gave up making my bed for Lent. I'm not even going to go there because the syncretism of evangelical Christianity embracing all these other liturgies frankly concerns me greatly. Rather than give up something, why don't you carve out a section of time and just sit with the Word and sit in prayer. And if you don't know how to pray, just read a psalm and read it slowly. I will tell you, after some good time Friday morning, I was totally recalibrated and refocused and recentered that I can do nothing apart from him. Well, another thing Jesus' baptism signals is the beginning of his ministry. I'm not going to turn to these verses for 
the few of us who would want to. Some of you take notes. You can jot them down if you want to. You don't need to feel pressure. But Acts one twenty one, Luke signals this was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So this baptism we're looking at is the sign of Jesus now coming out from his life as a son of Mary and a son of Joseph and a carpenter by trade. And he is now coming out as his public ministry begins. Uh, Another signal is his identification with a Trinitarian Godhead. Now, I know this is a little thick, but try to stay with me. This is very important stuff. Sometimes the Trinity is taught as water, steam, and ice. Same substance, three different forms. This is called modalism. This is heresy. Uh, the Trinitarian doctrine is so important to understanding Scripture and even how our salvation hinges on the Trinity's relationship that there are three distinct persons in one Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all God. One is not a third of or a little less than God the Father. They are three distinct <clears throat> persons but the Godhead three, <clears throat> the old songs we used to sing. And the Trinitarian doctrine is important for tons of reasons, and I want to just show you why in this passage. Jot down uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4, 5, and 6, the clearest reference in the New Testament, in my humble opinion, of a Trinitarian doctrine, where Paul says we all have varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, varieties of ministries, but the same Lord, varieties of effects, but the same God. There's three different activities in the passage of the abuse and misuse of gifts. He goes, look, we have the same spiritual gifts, we have the same Lord who gave us those, and we have the same God who affects those ministries. But the most important thing we see in this passage in verse 21 is when heaven is opened and God breaks into human history with a voice from heaven. Now, the language here to me is very fascinating, and I like Spielberg's renderings of a lot of this stuff. When he opens the heavens, that is it. to me that's as close as you're going to get with sanctified imagination of what happens. That heaven opens up and the voice of God breaks through and speak something. And again, in your community group, you will have a chance to look at some of the times when God speaks during Jesus' life. Those are also very interesting records in the gospel accounts. Isaiah 64, 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence open heaven up and come down. We need you to come down and help us. Isaiah 63, 15. Look down from heaven and see your holy and glorious habitation where your seal and your mighty deeds. The New Testament uses the word seal to talk about God's spirit. Many references in the Old Testament of God, the heavens opening and God coming down. And here we read, look at your text, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form. Now, this is going to seem real min minutiae here, but hang with me. The Holy Spirit. Not Holy Spirit, not Spirit, not the Spirit, but the definite article, the Agios Holy Numa Spirit. Intentional on God the Sovereign inspiring Luke, the one who writes it. Because God wants you to understand what's happening at this baptism is not just a little part of Jesus' life. This is critical to who this Jesus is and why he's being baptized. 
Again, if we looked at Mark and Luke's account, we would see, uh, uh, Mark and Matthew's account, we would see the exchange with John the Baptist. You're not being baptized for repentance. That's right, I'm not. I'm being baptized for a different reason. And the signal, most important thing, is identification. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. Now, the bodily form, it creates a lot of interesting ideas. Um, uh, we, we call something that we can see uh, corporeal. It's an English word, corporeal, uh, versus non-corporeal. If the wind goes through a room, it's non-corporeal. If, if uh, a rainstorm blows through there, it's corporeal. We can see something going, being carried along with the wind, okay? What this text is telling me is when the Holy Spirit descends, he descends in bodily form, and then we read like a dove. But we're jumping ahead. This particular iconograph, um, Greek Orthodox ancient artist from time immemorial, have tried to depict the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus at his baptism. More often than not, there's a dove. Some churches, their, their logo is a dove descending, the Holy Spirit descending. And uh, I need to help you a little bit there. Because bodily form is not a reference to the dove. Bodily form is a reference to God's Holy Spirit. And people go to great strains to say, well, it's like the spirit that was brooding over the, the earth before, the waters before creation. Well, it doesn't say a bird. Well, it's like Noah's dove. Well, Noah's dove was a dove, not the Holy Spirit. And then they go, well, it's, it's like the eagle in the Psalms. No, that's an eagle, not a dove. And on this argument goes. And they go, well, it's a dove because you were to sacrifice two turtle doves. The same word for pigeon in Greek. That presents a problem to my theology, a pigeon landing on Jesus' head. <laughs> Sorry, I've got to draw a line there. Now, here's a rule of Bible study methodology. If the plain sense makes common sense, it's foolish sense to seek another sense. If the plain sense makes common sense, it's foolish sense to seek another sense. And this is why Bible study is so important, men and women, that you spend some time looking at these passages and not just making assumptions from history's sake. The Holy Spirit descends in bodily form. The bodily form goes back to the word Holy Spirit, not forward to the word dove. So, what does it look like? I don't know. But in my sanctified imagination, when Spielberg has his little ghosties flying around, that's a pretty good idea. It's corporeal in that there's some substance there, but it's the spirit. It's pneuma. And the spirit can mean wind. And why I think this is more important than just a bird falling on Jesus' head is because when God creates man as his image bearer, Jesus is the one who fashions him, and he breathes the ruach of life, the spirit that animates the man to be a living being different than the animal kingdom because you're made in the image of God. Your salvation is also linked to the Trinitarian work because apart from God the Father sending God the Son to die for you and me and apart from the Spirit indwelling and sealing our salvation, we cannot be saved. It requires a Trinitarian theology to understand a biblical salvation. That may seem very academic and erudite. I'm sorry, but I do feel a little passionate about it, as you might be able to tell. The dove is not a visible manifestation. The phrase, like a dove, also in Matthew 10, 6, has to do with how a dove lights. 
how a bird would land gently. So, if I'm right, the Holy Spirit of God, the voice opens from heaven, down comes this Holy Spirit in some corporeal bodily form that descends, and I think it looks just like Jesus Spielberg-esque, and resides upon Jesus gently as he comes down from heaven. And then the voice identifies the Christ. A voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Remember, Gabriel is dispatched for both um, Elizabeth and jo for John, uh, his father, Zacharias. He's dispatched for Mary, the virgin. Uh, but God the Father says, this is one I get to announce. Because he's my son. The announcement identifies the Christ, and nothing suggests in the text that only Jesus heard it. In fact, if you read your Bible, just plain and simple, it says he's baptized at the same time when other people were baptized, and all indications were, all four Gospels included. In other words, they knew it happened. So everyone who's within earshot has heard and seen this event. And the identification seals his son. Three parts to the voice of God's announcement and identification. You are my beloved son. Son connects to a number of passages. Let me just give you two because of their richness. And again, sometimes we have to think like a first century Jewish person or a first century person who is hearing these things. And these are the phrases that would run in their brain. Psalm 2-7, I surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten thee. How can God have a son that he begets? And that confused the rabbis. Remember, Jesus will talk to them about that. Isaiah 42, 1 is really cool. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, my son in whom I am well pleased, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. These are messianic references. And so when the voice from heaven says these kinds of things, the first century pious Jew who'd come out to be baptized for repentance because the kingdom was coming and they saw this and this is why John is blown away. He goes, who am I to touch your dirty foot? Much less baptize you. And they would know that he is identified as the son of God. Secondly, my beloved this word here means unique, one of a kind, my lovely, my one and only. It's like Genesis 2 when God tells Abram, take your son now, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him to me. Those of you who have an only child or an only daughter or an only son understand that better than others. My beloved. And finally, well pleased. This is the delight God takes in his perfect son. The old joke about, you know, a Jewish joke about my son the doctor, my son the rabbi. They're proud of their sons. Nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing to be proud of your children. He's well pleased. Verses 23 to 28, a quick look at just two parts of the genealogy. It's backwards in this case. It goes from Jesus to Adam. The placement here is what intrigues me more than anything because it is placed all the birth narrative of both John and Jesus, the culmination of their lives, have now coincided from eternity past as was planned. John's baptism, come out, Jew, come out, those of you who are of, of, of Israel, and repent because your king is coming. The king shows up. 
Now the voice comes down and confirms and identifies, this is my son, and then we get the genealogy. What's happening? He's the son of God and the son of man. And both those are overlaid very critically in the way the structure of loose gospels, gospel unfolds. We have another time stamp in verse 23. Jesus is about 30. Now this is Luke, Dr. Luke, who knows all these details. Why doesn't he say he's 29 and a half? Why does he say about 30? Did he not know? Of course he knew. That wasn't the point. The point was he's about the right age. Ezekiel 1, Numbers 4, Genesis 41, many references where a prophet, priest, or king had to be about 30 before they could enter into ministry. And Jesus, of course, will be the prophet, priest, and king. And this begins his inaugural ministry. He is also, in verse 23, watch carefully, supposed, as supposed to be the son of Joseph. Why does Luke say it that way? Uh, the world thought he was Joseph's son because Joseph married this little Mary when she was pregnant with Jesus. The world looked at it, but we, we would say he was, you know, a stepfather kind of. And we hear very little of Joseph's life. He must have been older. He must have died at some point early in Christ's life. The point is Luke is not overlooking the virgin birth, even in his record of the genealogy. The point of this text is God the Father is identifying this one as his son. And there is no other. And he is fully God and fully man. And the very Holy Spirit, the person of the Godhead three, descends upon him, accompanied with the voice, to identify this fully God, fully man. Luke has established the Christ. From the predictions of eternity past, from the stories of the Old Testament, the announcement to the little virgin girl, the miraculous birth, the baptism, the angels who say, the shepherds who come, all these events, the Baptist who is the herald to present the king to Israel who will reject him, and he must be authenticated and inaugurated. And in keeping with Lloyd's argument of witnesses, we've got lots of witnesses going on that this is happening. Daryl Bach writes, the point is especially clear in Luke's presentation where Jesus' position as the promised Davidic ruler is clear from the very beginning in chapter 1. Rather, what is present is the first testimony to Jesus from heaven. In other words, this is the first time God said, this is my son. That's why this passage is important. He is God's agent who prepares to embark on his mission. The baptism is like an inauguration, a call to begin the mission for which Jesus was always headed. I like that. From eternity past, beyond our comprehension of time, Jesus' lot in life was fulcrumed here to be the Son of God and the Son of Man and to take that into the world. A couple of so what's. Number one, so what? Why would a person be baptized? Okay, John's baptism was for repentance for the Jew. Jesus' baptism is for identification as the very Son of God and the Son of Man. Why would a person, another person, uh, be baptized. We have lots of different modes and methods, as I mentioned at the beginning, but uh, the Scripture teaches what we call believer's baptism, simply, that after a person trusts Christ, he or she is baptized. The book of Acts, there are a couple of exceptions, and we could sure talk about that at some length at a later time, but the pattern is a person trusts Christ, he or she, and then they follow in baptism. Jesus gave this as a command when he gave the Great Commission. Make disciples, as you go, of all nations, what? 
baptizing them. Why in the world would you get wet? It doesn't make any sense in any portion of life. Baptism is an identification that I'm following Christ. Just as Jesus is baptized and heaven opens and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased and the spirit of God descends upon him. When you and I are baptized, we are identifying ourselves with this Christ. We are identifying ourselves as one who has believed and trusted and put our faith in him. Baptism should be public. It doesn't always have to be. There are sometimes it's not for extenuating reasons, but why would it be public? Because you want people to see it and you want to tell where your allegiance lies. For once in a while, I'm asked to do a private baptism and for all general intents and purposes, I don't do that. I would for someone in a hospital or something, but to me it defeats one of the main purposes. It's supposed to be public. It's not about a private ritual. And the reality of it is I've done this long enough and been in this business to know, excuse me for being stereotypical or hurting anybody's feelings, a lot of women won't get baptized as adults because they don't want their hair to get wet in front of a bunch of people. And it's true. And the same is true for a lot of people. They don't want to get up in a group in front of people and be baptized. You know, um, if you support a candidate, you might put a sticker on the back of your car or a yard sign in your front yard, or you might work a campaign. You might be proud to be associated with candidate A or B or C. You're being identified with him or her, but you won't be identified with your king. It's not meant to cause guilt. It's meant to ask questions. If you've put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, you follow in obedience by being baptized to show you're identified. That's the big word with the baptism. Forget the mode, forget the amount of water, forget all those issues for now. It's this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I am well pleased in you. Literally, Luke writes it. And when you're baptized and give your profession of faith, that he lived, died, and was buried, came back from the dead, I put my trust in Christ to do for me what I cannot do for myself. You're identifying yourself as a follower of his. And you're doing the one thing he asked you to do that, oh, by the way, he also did. He didn't do it to get saved. He didn't do it to join a church. He didn't do it to transfer membership. He did it to be identified as the son of God, the son of man, who came to pay for your way and mine. A lot of times kids get baptized and it's always exciting and thrills our hearts. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. Sometimes a child wants to be baptized. They're very passionate about it, and they kind of wear us out, and we say yes. Other times our children don't want to get baptized, and yawn and on it goes. Um, I, I would say this. I would say I think we do it too young too often, just my opinion. I don't think most kids comprehend what they're doing. Now, maybe they do. Maybe your son or daughter. Of course, your son or daughter did, I'm sure. I know I've talked to a lot of adults that said I got baptized when I was, you know, and I didn't know what I was doing. And there's no rush to be baptized. I love, I love that this particular church doesn't require baptism for membership. I love that because the Bible doesn't require baptism for membership. It requires faith in Christ. That's the body of Christ.
But we sometimes need to follow in baptism. Am I willing to be identified with him? I will encourage you as a parent when you're helping your children come to know Christ, please do not tell them to ask Jesus into their heart. Number one, it's not taught anywhere in the Bible that we ask Jesus into our heart. Number two, a four, five, six, eight-year-old concrete-thinking child thinks Jesus shrinks down, goes in their chest cavity, opens the door in their heart, sits down in a little chair and closes the door. That's how a concrete child thinks. And here's where we have trouble as adults. We don't think a child can comprehend trusting in Christ, believing in him, putting their faith in him to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Didn't Jesus marvel at childlike faith? Not childlike, ask me into your heart. You see, it's really an overcompensation on our part that we don't, we're not comfortable with faith and trust and belief in Christ and Christ alone. And so we glom stuff on to make it clearer for our kiddos when in fact we might be confusing them. 1992, May 17th, I saw an 18-year-old Bill Wellens get baptized. I had never been to Little Rock, Arkansas before in my life. Not like that was for any good reason, just never had a reason to go. And I had never been at this church before in my life. And Cindy and I sat in the upper nosebleed sections of this large church and saw this 18-year-old boy who we did not know and his father. And we have the clip. Nothing really changed. So um, 
I probably didn't have any really gross related sins as a seven-year-old. But, um, but I also wasn't really growing in Christ. So then when I was 11, um, I realized how much I really needed uh, Jesus. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to know Christ just so I could get to heaven. But I wanted to live for him on earth. And um, so in September, after a Dawson McAllister talk, um, I prayed with my dad and called on the way home. And, um, and since that time, I've had some really tremendous influences in my life. Uh, these past couple of years, I've been signed by Jeff Schulte, who's, uh, who's now a seminary in Oregon, and uh, Mark Julian, who is my youth pastor. And uh, not only have they been really encouraging, but, um, but they've also had me accountable in many areas, and, uh, and they've really been a help. And, uh, and then two other incredible examples in my life that I watch every day are my parents, um, Billy Carroll and Wellens. Um, they've always been there to listen. Um, to encourage and to get me back on my feet again. And uh, without them, I don't know where I'd be today. And I appreciate them a lot. After Jesus was baptized, a voice came out of heaven and said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And if I can say it, <laughs> this is my beloved Son, and I am very pleased. Based upon your testimony, what your mother and I have witnessed in your life for a number of years, it's a privilege today to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism. Ways to walk in newness of life. He's probably caught the uh, influence of other people in his life, the influence of his parents in his life. He's 18 years of age when he's getting baptized. Cindy and I sat in that balcony, and I choked it back. I didn't know who the guy was. And I was like, for a dad to say that about his son? I was almost 50 years old before I heard the words from my father, I'm proud of you. It's longing that's sewn into the fabric of our soul, not just from our humanly father, but from God the Father. And that's the last so what. You are his beloved. He loves you. And you have to beat back the demons that tell you otherwise. You have to beat back the self-contempt, the failures, the disappointments, the broken hearts, the failed relationships, the struggles financially, the challenges with your health, what your parents may have done to you that harmed you, you have to beat that stuff back with an ugly stick. And you have to come underneath the voice of God from heaven saying over his son by his very spirit's incorporeal body coming onto him, you are my son, my beloved son. And in you I'm well pleased. Some of you won't even hear that. You're just going to turn it off because you think you're tough or you don't need it. I am telling you, you need it every day of your life to know that you're beloved. He loves you. And if you've trusted Christ, you're under him. And it's not what you do or I do. If it, that were the case, he wouldn't love any of us. It's what Jesus has done for us. And our righteousness is not ours, but it's Christ's righteousness that is all over you and around you and in you. 
if you place your trust in Christ and Christ alone. He loves you.